Hey, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we're starting this series. We started it last week. It's called Hidden in Plain Sight. It's all about the parables. Danny sang about one this morning, one of the parables. As he said, it's the way Jesus taught, and it's the way Jesus conveyed spiritual principles. But what we're doing for a few weeks before we get into the actual stories that Jesus told is we're trying to take a close look at how we read Scripture and what we do when we read it and how we understand it. Most of us have the impression that if, if I just open it up and read it, then I see what it says, and you see what it says, and then we think the same thing, but you know as well as I do, if that were the case, we wouldn't have as many churches as we have, or as many names of churches or denominations, that the history of Christendom is, is fraught with disagreements and fights over things that are written in here, and how people read them. And so, these few weeks, we want to dig on that a little bit. Because we want the parables to hit us in some fresh ways and in some good ways. So to keep us all on the same page and keep us moving in a good direction, we've created this website. And it's a part of our church website, but there's a page called Grow. And on that page, you'll find some discussion questions. If you're a journaler, they're great prompts for you to begin thinking and writing. If you'd like to have a lively dinner discussions, this is a great place to start. If you want to just have some thoughts to be able to explore with your small group. It's a great place to go. Each week, discussion questions, scriptures that are used in the sermon, all that. So hit that up, and you can find it. It'd be great. And so as we dig into this, we shared last week that every time, not every time, but often when Jesus tells a story, a parable for teaching, he finishes it with this, this phrase. When he said this, this parable was the parable of the sower, he called out, and so let's say this together, okay, you ready? This is what he said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So apparently you can listen without listening. Apparently you can hear something and you haven't actually heard it. The other day Donna said to me, are, are you even listening to me? And I thought that was an odd way to start a conversation. And so I had her back up a few minutes, you know, apparently I had not been paying attention. And so you can hear without hearing. What does that, what does that mean? And how often does that happen with us when we read scripture, engage in a conversation with somebody else? When Jesus says this, what he's saying is he's saying this, essentially, most of us hear what we want to hear, and we disregard the rest. The great theologian Paul Simon is the one who said that, not the Apostle Paul. Um, this is descriptive of how we approach issues, topics, political discourse, how our faith develops. We hear what we want to hear. And when we don't hear what we want to hear, our brain does this incredible thing where we are able to filter out the stuff that is, uh, we decide, irrelevant, unimportant, not true, the aberration, the exception, and we latch onto the stuff that already confirms what we think we know. This is an incredible thing that happens in the way we think. I have a name for it. I call it the, the, the Lloyd effect. So that's Lloyd, Lloyd Christmas. He's chatting with Mary Swanson. I mean, half the reason why he wants to begin his relationship with Mary is because if they were to marry, her name would be 
Merry Christmas. If you're, come on, pay, pay attention. Just stay with me a little bit. And so he, he confesses his love to Mary. And in the movie, he says, what are the odds that a guy like you would ever get with a girl like me? That's the direct quote. And she tells him the odds. Do you remember what they were? One in a million is what she says. And he looks a little downcast, but then it occurs to him what she said. And he begins to smile, and he says, what? You guys know that better than you know scripture. <laughs> we should just try John 3.16 just to see how you do. That's right. He says, so you're telling me there's a chance. And there is a, a thing at play here. And while it is funny with, with Lloyd, it's true for us, that there is a, a way that we approach information and this method, this way our brain filters information, has a deep impact on what we think, what we believe, what our convictions are, how we treat other people. It affects every area of our lives, including the most deep and heartfelt things like what we believe about who God is, and who Jesus is, and how we read Scripture. And there isn't another phenomena other than the Lloyd effect, that is more at play. The psychologists have a better name for it. They obviously don't use that. They call it confirmation bias. And confirmation bias refers to this effect that occurs in our lives where we filter out what we don't agree with and we embrace what we do agree with. Let's say you're a, a CNN watcher. It's where you get your news and your information and your perspective and you watch CNN and you feel politically, morally, ethically aligned. And somebody came into your house when you weren't looking and switched it over to Fox News. And so when you turn on your TV, there's Hannity or Tucker or somebody telling you something about what's happening in the world. What are the odds that after 20 minutes you go through a complete conversion? And you begin to think, I can't believe I haven't been watching this channel. Everybody on CNN is completely loopy. What are the odds? Right. Yeah, yeah. One in a million. It's so great when you pay attention. I love it. And so confirmation bias works in this way. Our brain has this incredible ability. We're deeply invested in our opinions and our beliefs and our brain filters out the stuff we don't want to know or see or understand. Now, this is so much larger than just a psychology concept that is fun to read about and learn about. And it is. You can Google it all day long and, and read examples of it in the news. You can compare your own life to the examples that you experience. This has very deep, far-reaching, incredibly devastating or powerful implications massively. Let's say that you were alive in the antebellum South, the pre-Civil War South in the 1840s, the 1850s, the 1860s. And you went to church. You were a follower of Jesus. And in your church, it wouldn't matter whether it was a denominational church or a or a, a startup church or a, some tent revival that came through town and then stayed and became a church. It wouldn't matter. 
But let's say you, a part of this culture that was enmeshed and interwoven with the the idea of slavery, you opened up your Bible and began to read some of the holy words that Paul wrote. We'll just pick one out of Ephesians. This is uh, straight out of the book to the church at Ephesus. I picked one from the New Testament, but I could have picked any one of five or six verses that say almost identical things. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Now what would you think as a part of the pre-Civil War South if you read that verse? What would be your conclusion? What would be your conviction? What would your opinion be? That maybe God is for slavery? I mean, the, the text literally tells slaves how to live. It doesn't say slaves rise up. It doesn't say slaves take your life back. It doesn't say slaves you don't owe anything to your earthly masters. It tells them that you are to obey your earthly masters. And how? With respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. In fact, it goes on. We just showed you a portion of what's there of this section, it goes on to kind of tie and link a slave's behavior to their relationship with God. That their behavior, characterized in these ways, is equivalent to them being thoughtful followers of Jesus. So what would be your conviction? What would be your conclusion? Never mind that A slave in the first century is not anywhere nearly comparable to a slave in 1840 or 1700s, for that matter, in the U.S. Never mind that the understanding of what is going on here, slaves probably is not even the proper word in the translation. The NIV is a modern translation, and still they chose to use the word slave. So what would be your conclusion? When you read sermons from the 1800s, the 1840s, the 1850s, 1860s, I mean, I I can't imagine being a preacher back then thinking that my words would live on. I'm acutely aware that almost every word I say is recorded somewhere. And it's recorded on the internet. It's there in perpetuity. It's never going to go away. I can't tell you how many panic attacks I've had just thinking about that reality. But I would think if I was preaching in 1861 that I would have a pretty sure bet that my words are going to die with me. But they didn't. They got written down. And you can read transcripts of pastors in Mississippi and Alabama who preached to their churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, you name it. And they used Scripture to articulate the belief in front of all their parishioners, that slavery not only is morally and ethically allowed, it was instituted and upheld by God. And they use scripture to articulate that time and time again. Can you imagine using God's word to justify a response of anything other than love for an entire group of people? Can you? 
I bet you can. I bet you can think of one now. Can you imagine using scripture to giving you an excuse to withhold love, acceptance, and compassion from an entire group of people? I bet for some of you there are a few groups that have come to mind. And it's not 1850 or 1860. It's now. When Jesus told the parables, the disciples stopped him and said, why do you teach in parables? We said this last week. One of the things Jesus says is this. Whoever has will be given more and they'll have an abundance. This is Jesus' answer to the question. Why do you teach in parables? And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He's talking like a rabbi. You know, you got to put all that into the context. Jesus is saying, this is why I teach in parables. If somebody has something, then there are people who have some, and I'm going to teach in a parable, and they're going to have more. More what? Well, a lot of things that are more. More God, more perspective, more truth, more love, more compassion. And they'll walk away with their arms full. They had this much, but now they've got this much. And there are some people that when I teach parables, they, they don't have very much. And, and even what they have, what they have right there in their hand is going to be taken from them. And they'll be looking for it, and it won't be there. In other words, Jesus says that when he teaches and he tells a story, the divide between the haves and the have-nots gets bigger. It grows. The people who are desirous of truth and desirous of learning, something happens in their life. And the people who are pretty sure that he doesn't know what he's talking about, they lose everything that they already had. And they walk away with nothing. The divide grows deeper. What does that mean? It means if you're a follower of Jesus or you're trying to sort it out and try to figure out what it means for you to live like Jesus and be like him and grow in your faith, it means that the deck is stacked against you. That's what it means. It means that the truth that's in here isn't going to come looking for you. You're going to have to go looking for it. It means that what you read at first blush is probably going to, most likely, if you read it thoughtfully, confuse you more than anything else. It means that you're going to have to push past confusion and, and doubt and fear and all kinds of things and pull back some layers that the, the casual observer isn't even going to want to get near, and you're going to have to dig a bit deeper. It means that you're probably wrong about some of the things that you think and believe, and you don't even know what those things are. That's what it means. Whoever wants more and desires it goes after it. They will add more to it. The divide gets deeper. This is how we described it last week. We said for that to happen for the disciples, they had to be humble and hungry. Remember that? Humble and hungry. And there's a hundred ways to say that. They have to be curious. They have to desire. They have to take the position of student all the time. They have to have their hands open. Most of us think that we come to scripture or faith or some understanding of theology or who God is with with an empty cup. That's what we think, that our cup is empty and we're just ready to have it filled. So we sit down to read scripture, we sit down to pray, or you come to church, whoever it is that you get fed in a variety of ways, and we fill our empty cup. But your cup isn't empty. 
Your cup isn't empty at all. Your cup is full, in fact. It's full of all kinds of things, some things that your parents taught you, some things that your grandparents taught your parents and they taught you without even thinking about it, some stuff you read and something that you heard on TV and a friend talked to you at lunch, and your cup is full. And for you to have any room for truth, capital T truth, true for all people, all places, all times, to fit in your cup, something's got to come out. And we don't even know what that thing should be most of the time. But if you want to walk away with something in abundance, then it requires our ears to hear in ways that they haven't before. That's how every change takes place. We hear something as if it were for the first time. And we say something like, I didn't even know it said that in the Bible. Would we're humble and hungry and curious, position of learner, empty cup, however you want to say it. Paul even describes what happens as a result of that. What happens when we trade an old idea that's worn out, not even true, handed down to us by somebody that meant well but misunderstood scripture. When we trade that for something that is true and real and different, he describes what happens and he does it in Romans 12. And so this passage, the whole chapter is one of my favorite chapters, but this passage, this one sentence describes it good. Paul says it this way, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's so good. We'll say it together. You ready? Here we go. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what Paul has described is what it means to be humble and hungry and curious and the position, posture of a student, a learner, open-handed, open-eared, open-eyed. And when we read this, we think, well, we don't want to be like them. We consider the world to be them. Do not conform to be like them, but we can be different. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying something entirely different than that. So there's two words I want you to focus in on to help us grasp what this means and get our arms around this verse. One more week of laying some foundations next week, and then we'll jump into the parables. The first word is this word mind at the end of the verse. This word mind, we think it means you know, our intellect or our rational thought or our ability to make a decision. That's not what it means. It means that to us Westerners. But the word in the Greek that was spoken by Paul, written by Paul in this context, is far more broad than that. And it refers to your whole person, that there is a a part of you described by this word. Mine's a horrible translation, but it refers to your thoughts, the things that you think. Some are voluntary, some are involuntary. You know this, right? Every now and then a thought comes into your head and you think, how did that get there? These are your thoughts. We train them. We try to work on making them move in good directions and still, even to our best efforts, some things show up that we think shouldn't be there at all. And then we have our emotions, and you could name some emotions, couldn't you? You know, what it means to be angry and sad and happy and joyous and peaceful and all of our emotions. But then also included in this idea is our will. And here's my guess this week. This week, whatever friction you had with somebody else was a result of your mind getting in the way of what needed to happen relationally. It could be that you are short or angry, an emotion got in the way. 
It could be you wanted what you wanted and it really didn't matter what they wanted and so now there's some apologies that need to be made. It could be that your thoughts ran away from you and you began to have suspicious thinking about somebody's motives towards you or your boss or anybody. But odds are, whatever friction you experienced this week, it came from your thoughts, your emotions, or your will. Paul describes for the humble and the hungry, there is a transformation that can occur in your mind. But only, only for those who are curious and learners and students in the whole process who need to know what they don't know and today might not even know what you're unaware of. And he says that our mind is transformed, metamorphosis, that's the Greek word in the text, is transformed by one thing, by the, what's the word? By the renewing of your mind. It's a great word. And again, it's probably a bit of a miss, but translators like the word renewing. But what it means is that there is a change that takes place in the way that you think and that changes for the better. That's what it means. And really, probably a better word would be renovation. You know what that's like, right? I mean, you've done some renovation in your house. You saw the house and you thought, you know, this is good. It has good, what? Bones. Good bones. We like the bones. And uh, the good bones means the foundation is good. The walls are in the wrong place. Well, I don't know why they configured the bathroom that way. The kitchen's all messed up. That's a 1950s bathroom. And so what we do is we renovate and we take a wall that shouldn't be there and we take it down. And maybe we open it up and you say, now this is a room our family could enjoy and love. And you renovate it. You change it. You took what was there and you modified it, sometimes significantly and sometimes just a little enough. And you took what was old and you made it new. This is what's described by the renewing of the mind. So there's some things that you think about who Jesus is that need to be renovated. There are some ways that you understand the gospel that need to be transformed. There are some ways that your thoughts, emotions, and will get in the way of having deeper, more thoughtful, more authentic, more real, more true relationships. And that can only be transformed through the renewing, the renovation of your mind. How does that happen? Well, it happens when you come to Scripture and you've taken your cup and you've looked for a few things, you slosh some water out, made a little room, and now we're ready to say, Lord, I have no idea what I need to be taught, but I'm a student. I have no idea what I'm wrong about, but I know that if I'm open to the idea that you're going to change, renovate something in me, then something new can happen in my life. But if I'm sure I've got it all correct, I have arrived, then I come to God for the stamp, the check mark. I, I, really, all I want is a little star on the poster that say, I've been there, I went. But that's not what God wants from us. God wants us to come open-hearted, open-minded, and allow change to happen. And when that change happens, well, all of the change, it points in one direction to one outcome. This is how it happens. But later, Paul would write to some of his friends in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was Galatia back then. And when he did, this was his, his, his hope and his desire. 
Paul, a man, actually has the audacity to say, I am again in the pains of childbirth. Can you say patriarchy? That's what that means. Why would a man compare pains of childbirth to anything? I have no idea. But he says it. But the sentiment underneath it is good. He says, until what? Christ is formed in you. That there is a change that happens in us when Jesus is, is formed in us. What he wants, what he desires, how he loves. This is what Paul was hoping for. That there is an actual transformation in our heart, emotions, our mind, our will, our thoughts. The way John, as an old man, would say it, the Apostle John, he says this, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then he says this, say it with me, God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So Paul calls it Christ being formed in you. John's gonna say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it something that's maybe a little less theological, maybe a little more practical. It's love that's being formed in you. It's love that is being formed in us when we have our minds renewed. It's not correct beliefs. It's not even being right about how we see this or that. It is love that flows. And we see this in a thousand ways. He goes on to say it this way. The very next verse, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Say the last sentence with me. Are you ready? In this world, we are like Jesus. That's the goal. That's the result. This week, you're going to be around somebody, and they are pretty convinced that God wants nothing to do with them. And maybe they know you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe they suspected, maybe they heard, maybe something you saw or said, something that's on your desk, I have no idea. And they're absolutely convinced, but their understanding of God is going to be shaped and colored by their interactions with you. And they're either become more convinced God doesn't want anything to do with them, or they're going to begin to doubt that presupposition and be a little bit curious. And it will happen because of the way you love. Or don't love. Guaranteed. They will not care what you know. They will not care how many Bible studies you've been to. They will not care if you know the order of the books of the Bible or what you have memorized. What they will want to know is, what do you see when you see them? What does love actually look like? That's what they'll want to know. In this world, we are like Jesus. And any transformation that we hope for is only for the purpose of allowing love to take center stage. Not, not the mushy version of love today. The, I'm talking about the practical agape love that says, I desire your best interests more than my own. The love that says, I will give what I have to meet your needs. The love that says, I will listen to what you're saying because your life matters to me and it's important to me. And we can do good things together, but it will happen because love is in the center of all of it. So the question as we begin to ponder embarking on the parable stories is where is love going to take up a spot in our heart where there is something else that needs to be supplanted, removed, set aside. 
Let me guide you through a prayer that will help us uh, kind of close out today. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we come today because we believe that we have a need. For some of us, that need is uh, even being open to the possibility that we might be a little wrong about something, maybe a bit incorrect. We want to be humble and hungry. We want to be the kind of people that come to your word and even relationships and conversations about faith with cups that have some room in them, some emptiness about them. We want our hearts to be inclined to you in such a way that we would always be described with the posture of a student, a learner. Lord, that's what the word disciple means. We, we want desperately, regardless of our age or how many years we've walked in faith to allow humility to characterize our ability to learn. Lord, when we look at the history of the church, we are aghast from where we sit to think that there would be people who would use your word to justify something as evil as slavery. And yet, in the moment, that's exactly what occurred in church after church after church. So, Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you awaken our minds? Would you incline our ears to hear truth? Would you help us to use a filter, uh, an idea that centers around all the things that we learn? May love always grow, never diminish. And may that love be a practical, real love that outlasts any sentiment or feelings. Or we, be we believe that it will be love that changes the world, the love that Jesus has for us and for everyone that was ever made and will be made. Lord, this is our prayer, and we want it to flow from us. So Lord, right now in this moment, in the quietness of this room and online, Call to mind for us the people that are hard to love. For some of us, it's a person with a name and a relationship. For some of us, it's a whole group of people. Or we believe our love is incomplete and you're gentle and wise enough to show us where that love falls short. No condemnation, no shame, no fear but we know that you want love to grow. So who is it, Lord, that is in need of not just your love, but love from each of us? This week, Lord, may we walk in that love and express it, show it. Pray that it would flow from us. In the name of Jesus, we say this together, amen.